Well, a couple of weeks ago, the, Cynthia and I were waiting in the dentist office waiting room, and I was trying to redeem the time by working on some PowerPoint slides for the next series of messages that we're going to be looking at. Initially, I was thinking that it would be Christianity 101 or Foundations of Our Faith, something like that. And as I shared it with Cynthia, she came up with what I thought was a brilliant idea. So our series is going to be Faith Basics. And you'll recognize the sign. <laughs> I loved it. So this will be a three-week series of messages that the elders thought would be a good way for us to begin the year 2020. This morning, and then not next week, because next week we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we'll be returning again to Romans chapter 5, but then the week following, and then the week after that, we'll be looking at some faith basics. This is not a comprehensive study. I'm sure that if we sat down and talked about faith basics, we'd be able to come up with a much longer list than just three. But these are three faith base basics that we wanted to emphasize at the beginning of a brand new decade. Even though his only previous head coaching experience had come at a high school in Englewood, New Jersey, Vincent Thomas Lombardi was hired as the coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers on January 28, 1959. At his introductory press conference, Lombardi delivered one of the first of those famous one-liners that would outlive him when he said, I never have been associated with a loser, and I don't expect to be now. And he wasn't. The Packers, who were one win, ten losses, and one tie in 1958, and hadn't had a winning record in 11 years, went seven wins, and five losses in Lombardi's first year, and he was named NFL Coach of the Year. The following year, in 1960, they narrowly lost in the NFL championship game. Lombardi's overall winning percentage in all games, playoffs included, was a remarkable .750, the best in NFL history among coaches with at least 100 victories. It was at the beginning of the 1961 training camp. Lombardi was speaking to his team and he made that now famous pronouncement when he picked up the football and he said to these professional football players, this is a football and the training camp began. Can you imagine? Well, here at the beginning of our 2020, 
Rock Community Church Training Camp. We want to begin not with gentlemen, this is a football, but with beloved, this is the Bible. In a couple of weeks it will be, this is believer's baptism, and then the week after, this is local church membership. Let's begin. This, this is beloved this, beloved, this is the Bible message by defining present reality. Faith Today is a monthly magazine published by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. A few years ago, Alex Newman wrote an article published in Faith Today titled, Shocking Statistics on Bible Reading. A new Canadian survey suggests there's major work to be done. The survey that he was referring to took place at the end of 2013. It was called the Canadian Bible Engagement Study. And listen as I read from the article that Newman wrote. The study found some bad news, some good news, and some surprises. First, the bad news. Since 1996, there has been a dramatic decline in regular Bible reading. From 28% reading at least weekly to just 11%. That's less than half in over a seven-year period. And weekly church attendance from 27% to 16%, again, in seven years. Specifically, only 5% of Canadians report reading the Bible daily, just 14% read it at least once a month, and weekly re Bible reading is down by 60% over a seven-year period. He goes on, what's surprising and distressing is that most Canadians either seldom or never read the Bible, a decline evident not only in the historic Protestant and Catholic churches, but among evangelicals too. He goes on, it was also surprising to discover the decline was even sharper among older people than youth. Speculation about whether the Bible, whether some Bible reading was occurring online instead was found to make little or no difference to Bible reading frequency. That is probably not all that surprising to many of us. Bible literacy is on the decline in Canada among believers and unbelievers alike. It may not be surprising, beloved, but it has to be concerning. Has to be. Because this book is the foundation of our faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 reads, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
it is essential to faith. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Once we have responded appropriately to God's demonstration of love for us in faith, believing that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, was the Christ, the the Son of God, as he's presented in the scriptures, trusting him alone for our salvation, the Bible becomes an indispensable means for, for our sanctification. We are saved by faith, but we learn to walk as we spend time with God. That's our sanctification, learning to walk by faith. And it is a process that is linked directly to our exposure to this book. Listen to these familiar words from the Apostle Paul, written to his young protege, or younger protege, I should say, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. These are familiar words, and so I'm going to read them in the New Living Translation to give us a new hearing. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Saved by faith so that we then can learn to walk by faith. These 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are the primary record and means of God's saving work in the world and his sanctifying work among his people. That's our present reality. Here are a couple of other verses that you may want to jot down. I didn't include them on the handout, but these are worth jotting down. They present another present reality, actually from God's perspective. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man... And I, he's speaking to young men, but this has got much broader application. This includes all of us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. How blessed, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, and in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree 
planted firmly by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does prospers. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Let's move on from the present realities to a promising resource. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Can I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's word this morning, if you're able? Beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 19. This psalm is a poem, but it falls into three very distinct categories. Listen as we read. The heavens are telling of the Lord of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. And its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's the first section of the song. What's he he talking about? In those six verses. This is a revelation of God from creation. If you want another place to look, look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, where it talks about if you look around, there is evidence that there is a creative God that has created all this. He goes on, though. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of God are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the droppings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Revelation from Scripture. He's talking about the Torah. And now look what he does. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Because of the revelation of creation, 
revelation from creation and the revelation from the written word of God, he cries out in prayer. And he begins with a rhetorical question. Notice, who can discern his errors? We, we wouldn't know unless God revealed it in his word, that we have a broken relationship with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, your word assures us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Certainly, these inspired and supernaturally preserved scriptures are part of that package of resources that you have made available to us so that we can live lives that please and honor you. May we, may we be found taking full advantage of this provision. And as a result, be like trees planted by streams of water, firmly rooted, yielding much fruit. Forgive us for ignoring you, for not seeking your input, for being unteachable, nurturing a spirit of independence, living undisciplined lives. Enable the psalmist's testimony to become our testimony. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. May our souls pant for your word. You are the potter, we are the clay. Use your word to mold us and to make us, we pray. By the power of your spirit, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For our purpose this morning, I'd just like us to focus for a few moments on those verses in that second paragraph, or those standards that talk about the revelation from Scripture. Notice, first of all, how the psalmist refers to God's word. It is like he's taking a copy of the scriptures and placing them in the middle of one of those round tables that we recently purchased downstairs that seats eight people around them. And he sets the word in the middle and he begins to walk around it in his mind. And then he begins to describe or give different aspects of this written word I see at least five different references to the Word of God. Do you see them in those verses in 7 to 11? The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. All identify this written revelation from God. These labels communicate authority, sovereignty, dominion, and power. And based on these labels that the psalmist used here in describing or labeling the word of God, 
This is not a written revelation that should be ignored or dismissed or taken lightly. Rather, these words should be highlighted, written in bold, circled in our minds and on our hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel when he says these words, and it's the same words that the psalmist is looking at, the scriptures, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses was wanting them to be totally immersed in God's word. Surrounded, absorbed, fixated on it. Now let's look at what the psalmist says about what the word of God is. Again, you may want to circle these words. I've circled them in my, my copy of the scriptures. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, true and righteous altogether. In verse 10, notice, it is more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And I'm not suggesting that this is an exhaustive list of what the Word of God is, but it's a great start. Finally, notice what the Word of God does. And this is really the exciting part for you and I. Beginning at verse 7, it restores the soul. It makes the wise simple. It brings joy to our hearts. It enlightens our eyes, meaning that we begin to, to understand how to live our lives in ways that will please God. It produces an enduring fear of God. It provides a warning. In other words, it gives us a heads up. And it delivers a great reward to those who would obey it. The psalmist's references to the Word of God. What the Word of God is and what it does makes this book a promising resource. And as a result, that old hymn got it right. When we walk with the, with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory, what a glory he sheds on our way. And yet, biblical illiteracy continues to rise at an alarming rate in our Canadian culture. And yet the Bible remains an indispensable resource for our salvation and sanctification. 
So we've noted our present reality and then a promising resource. And now I would like us to recognize the privilege that is ours, that is yours and mine. A privilege recognized. To help us to do that, I would like to read just a little piece taken from the pages of history. At various times in history, and in some countries today, people have given their lives to preserve God's word. Even in England, where there was a time when the Bible was to be chained to the pulpit and handled only by the clergy. The scriptures were in Latin, and it was against the law for the Bible to be in the language of the common people. Against the law. In the midst of this repression of God's word, a man by the name of William Tyndale came along. He was an early English reformer who lived from 1494 to 1536, less than 500 years ago. He was troubled by the vast ignorance of scriptures among the people around him. I wonder what he would say about our recent Canadian survey. And he knew it would be impossible to change that unless the scriptures, and I'm quoting him, were plainly laid before the eyes in their mother tongue. The printing of his first English New Testament came off the press in 1525, even though it was against the law. And police raided and stopped his work. So Tyndale had to resume Bible translation in secret. He finished the following year and then began to write commentaries on Old Testament and New Testament books. Tyndale's output was impressive, especially considering the setbacks he faced. A shipwreck, the loss of manuscripts, being chased by secret agents, having his printer raided by the police, and being betrayed by friends. Despite these challenges, he was determined to get God's word into the language of the people. His translation was lucid, crisp, and concise, and above all, it, excuse me, it appealed, I'm not getting emotional, I've got a frog in my throat. Despite these challenges, he was determined to get God's word into the language of the people. His translation was lucid, crisp, and concise, and above all, it appealed to ordinary, down-to-earth people. His literary work, however, was never respected or recognized by the elite of his day. In 1535, Tyndale was arrested near the city of Brussels and imprisoned. The following year, he was strangled to death and his body was burned to ashes. But here we stand as beneficiaries of his work. You and I enjoy a privilege that cost William Tyndale his very life. And not just the death of, of Tyndale. That's a rather dramatic story. But think of the efforts and hours, the sacrifices and expenditures that have made, been made by linguists and Bible translators, writers and publishers, Preachers and Sunday school teachers, Bible colleges and seminaries, 
missionaries and professors. Sure, Frank, thanks. <clears throat> so that today, you and I enjoy a unprecedented access to this book, the scriptures. But perhaps familiarity does breed contempt. Or at the very least, it breeds complacency. That, plus being seduced by the things of this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and living in the midst of such prosperity, really, like, who needs to hear from God? We are busy, 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 chasing our own man-made Canadian dreams. You know, Agur's prayer in Proverbs chapter 30 serves as a great reminder to an ever-present danger. Two things I ask of you. Two things he asks of the Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. He's pleading. First, help me to never tell a lie. To be a person of integrity. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Beloved, access to the scriptures is an unprecedented privilege that leads to a personal responsibility. A present reality, a promised resource, a privileged recognized leads to a personal responsibility. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. You have to decide. I can't decide for you and you can't decide for me. Listen to these words from Chuck Swindoll. The Bible wasn't given simply to satisfy idle curiosity. The Bible wasn't written so that clergy would have something to say on Sunday morning. The Bible has been preserved to transform the lives of people like you and me. Never forget that. This is God's tool for transforming his people. But it's not a magic wand. Abracadabra will not work. You can't shove it under your pillow and sleep on it and hope the transformation will take place. It requires us to roll up our sleeves, turn up our hearing aids, put on our reading glasses. It's hard work. It will require both time and effort. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 reads, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And listen to these words in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little value, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for both the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. 
for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. I've shared the hand illustration with you before and I will probably share it again in the future. It's such a great way for us to remember how we get a hold of or how we input God's word into our lives. The hand. First the pinky. Weakest finger. But hearing the word of God from pastors and teachers provides fresh insight into the scriptures. It may be the weakest finger, but it's better than nothing. Hearing the word of God. We retain about 5% of what we hear but it's better than nothing. I would suggest that in the day of electronics, podcasts are phenomenal. We're without excuse. We have so much access to good biblical preaching. There's a caution there. There's a lot of stuff that's not good. And if in doubt, speak to one of the elders here at the church. We'll help you to work through that. If we don't know individually, We'll certainly do the research to help you find. But let's be taking advantage of that. Reading is the second finger. Represents the ring finger. Just read it. And folks, there are all kinds of reading programs that we can be involved in. I happen to use BibleGateway.com. It sends me an email every morning. Every day of the year I get an email. And I read through the Bible in 365 days because of that program. It gives me my daily reading. And I do that in the evenings, before the last thing of the day, before going to bed. Read about three or four chapters from the scripture. Make my way through the Bible. I know that Glenn Bailey shared yesterday with the men at the men's breakfast, he uses our daily bread. It's at the back. It's in the literature stand there. Pick one up on the way out. It helps you to read through the Bible every year. It gives you the assigned reading for that day. And a great little story to go along with it. Read the word of God. Studying represents the middle finger. This requires greater time and effort. And I would suggest it requires a, a pen and a piece of paper as well. But it results in more knowledge and the formation of our personal convictions. People retain about 35% of what they study. That Acts chapter 17 verse 11 reference there of course is to the Bereans who when they heard Paul preached examined the scriptures daily to make sure that what he was preaching was the truth. We need to be those kinds of people. And let me just park here for a few moments. And this is where we give a man a fish principle comes into play. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Of all the spiritual exercises, the habits that I could help you develop, this is the one as the teaching elder at the Rock Community Church that I would hope that I would be able to help you develop. It is critical. 
Cynthia and I decided, and this is rightly or wrongly, I'm not recommending it, but when our guys were born, just little boys, we made a decision early on that we were not going to share the gospel with them. That was a conscious decision on our part. We're not going to say, you need to pray this little prayer and Jesus is going to come into your heart and you will be a Christian. What we did instead, we made a commitment and were very intentional to teach them how to read the word of God so that they would meet the God of the Bible and be able to respond to him appropriately. Now, did it work perfectly? I wish I could say that. And that's why it's not necessarily... But I just share that to show you the commitment that we have to the word of God. This is God's written revelation and the way that he speaks to us and changes our life. I was introduced to this habit as a fairly young believer on the campus of the University of Guelph by the Navigators, an intensive discipleship group that was on the university at that time in the early 70s. And I can remember them sitting down and drilling into my head, seven minutes with God. That's all we're asking, seven minutes with God. And the seven minutes broke down to a half-minute prayer, asking God to help us to understand his word. Look up Psalm 143, verse 8. That was the, the psalm that they gave us to, to make sure that we prayed the prayer, asking God to help us. Four minutes of Bible reading. That's all they asked for. Four minutes. And then two and a half minutes of prayer. And they gave us the acronym ACTS. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Seven minutes with God. And they drilled that into me and for the next year and a half kept me accountable and made that a habit in my life that I still exercise to this day. Now, granted, it's grown to a lot more than seven minutes. But it has been my lifeline in my relationship with God. Begin, first of all, by making an appointment with God. Write it in your day timer. Same time, every day, in the same place. Meet with God. If I'm starting out with people that have never done this before, I will often say, we need to make this a habit. In order to make it a habit, I will give you the weekend off. So that leaves five days. And in five days, if it's going to become a habit, you have to be doing it more often than you're not doing it. So now we're down to three days. And so I will say, make a commitment to three days in the five days of the week to set an appointment to meet with God to read his word. Then choose a book. Any book of the Bible would do. I probably would recommend something in the New Testament. And even more specific, if you're a new believer, probably something in one of the gospel accounts that explains the life of Christ. I've, over the more recent years, when I work my way through a book in my quiet time, I read an entire chapter. And I read it every day of the week. Same chapter day after day after day, for one week period. And I make different observations, interpretation, and applications as the week goes on from the same chapter, usually focusing on a couple of verses that have struck me or caught my attention 
on any given moment. A friend of mine, when he reads the scripture like that, answers two questions. What does it teach me about God? And what does it teach me about my place in the world that God has created? Just two questions. Once you begin to focus on a couple of verses. Personally, I've used these three questions for years. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Just three questions. And I always I need to say that this is not sermon prep. This is you spending time in God's word. This is you trying to figure out what God is saying to you personally. If I'm preparing a sermon or writing a Sunday school lesson or getting ready to present God's word to other people, I begin with that kind of process, but there's a whole lot more study involved. And you need to be able to say with confidence, this is what the word of God is saying. But for our quiet time, that is suffice. I don't think this is complicated. I think we try to make it more complicated than it needs to be. The next thing I would suggest is that you need to be accountable. And I don't think family members are the best to keep you accountable. What I do is I go to Costco every year and buy their journal. They come in packages of two. And so each day you have a page and you can rip off the corners of the page as you make your way through the year. And so every day... I do some writing, maybe a sentence or two. Don't have to fill the page. But what that does is hold, me, is hold me accountable to my time alone with God. Because, folks, blank pages don't lie. And I have to admit, I love the beginning of a new year so I can throw that old one away because there's way too many blank pages in it. But it's a great way to hold yourself accountable. I have three extras. They come in packages of two. I usually buy extras every year so that I can hand them out to people that want to start the process. And if that's your next step in developing the input of God's word in your life, they'll be here at the front following the service. Please feel free to help yourself. I've already mentioned that using a pen and paper is absolutely critical. I think that we, we actually clarify our thinking as we write things out. It forces us be clear thinking. It's important to write yourself clear. Fourth finger is memorizing God's word. It enables us to have access to the word of God wherever we are, whenever we need it. It's an important discipline to have in our toolbox. I've used the topical memory system. Cynthia and I did it as an exercise prior to being married where we memorized the 60 verses. I've memorized it since that was in the King James Version. I've memorized them since in the NIV Version. And now I'm desperately, and as I grow older, I find it's harder, but I'm trying to memorize it in the New American Standard Bible. And by the, I've made a commitment by the end of 2020, I will have all 60 verses down perfect by the end of the year, plus hopefully some others as well. But topical memory system, you can look it up online. It's a great system to learn to to hide God's word in your heart. Meditation. It's represented by the, the thumb. And once you are exercising all five, then you get a really strong grip on God's word, right? 
And so that's an indication that you're de developing some real personal conviction. By meditating, or we've just come through the, the Christmas season where we talked about Mary pondering the things the angel had said to her and pondering the things she heard at the temple as Jesus was dedicated. That's what meditating is. It's taking God's words, you've memorized it, and now you're allowing it to roll around in your mind and apply it to different areas of your life. It's a great exercise. Can you imagine, just for a moment, if every one of us in this room this morning took the next step in inputting God's word into their life? Just the next step. I'm not talking about a, a giant leap for all of mankind. Just the next step. So think about where you're at and the input of God's word into your life on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. Define reality for you, your reality. And then let me ask you, what is the next step in increasing that input into your life? I just cannot imagine the difference it would make in your life, in our lives, in this church's life, if we took that seriously. I'd invite you to, to write out a CAM goal right here this morning. CAM stands for clear, achievable, and measurable. How could you increase the input of God's word over the next 360 days? You've already lost five. But over the next 360 days, I'm going to give us a, just a couple of minutes to think about that. You may want to begin and take that bulletin you received and write right on the front of the bulletin your CAM goal. Underneath the, the rock, I will over the next 360 days. It just has to be the next step, not a giant leap. But what would you be prepared to do to ensure that this book is having a greater impact in your life over the next 360 days. Take just a couple of minutes to think about that. With God's help, I will strive to. <clears throat> Teachability plus time plus exposure will equal walking with the Lord in the light of his word. Transform your life. Let's pray.
Father, we know that you desire the very best for each and every one of us. You provide us all that we need for life and godliness, a life that will please and honor you. But you call us to play a part in our sanctification in learning to walk by faith. Enable us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you who is at work within us, individually and collectively. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells all those who are trusting Christ alone for their salvation. May we be intentional and determined to develop habits that increase our exposure to your word and invite your spirit to continue to do his transforming work in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.